Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to bring back to our airwaves David Harsanyi. He's a senior editor at The Federalist, also a nationally syndicated columnist, author of several books, most recently Eurotrash, Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. His piece up at The Federalist uh, yesterday, I guess, Democrats, the only way to save democracy is one party rule. It gets at a lot of stuff we've been talking about, but from a, a different angle, and it's really interesting. David, welcome back, and, and thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You betcha. Um, yeah, let me let me let me like you uh, give your uh, give your thesis here. What are, what are you getting at with your column here, sir? In your words. Well, I noticed recently, and not so recently, actually, in our rhetoric and debate coming from the left, you know. Everything that they believe in, every agenda item, any kind of debate is always comes down to defending or protecting democracy from the other side. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it kept growing and growing and evolving into an argument where um, basically left wing columnists just say you have to vote for Democrats or you don't believe in democracy. There's a, an authoritarian mindset creeping in on the left that might not be as obvious to, to everyone, but it is a mindset that does not leave room for a political opposition. It does not leave room for dissent. When do we really debate issues anymore? When I started out, you know, doing this 20 years ago, you know, we used to debate issues all the time. Now we're just basically called homophobic, racist, ableist, transphobic, whatever it is. And there's no real debate anymore because they just don't believe in it. And, and it goes through everything they're doing, including legislation, where they want unilateral uh, control of, of legislation to cramp through bills with the slimmest of majorities with one party. When if the Supreme Court rules against them, the president just acts on his own. Uh, this is it's just unhealthy for the republic. So essentially, you know, that, I guess that's my point. Yeah, that no, and you did a great job looking at how some of the columnists have been talking about it. Particularly, Max Boot is in your sights. That's good. Would this be an example of it, David? I just saw uh, a text message sent out by former president. Jimmy Carter saying, without immediate action, we are at risk of losing our precious democracy. If you vote for Republicans, it will pave the way for an anti-democratic takeover of our country. That That's about as good an exhibit as, as what you're talking about yeah. as can be, right? I mean, what is he even talking about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what 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 policy position have Republicans taken that, that undermines democracy? Because they want voter ID in states? That's, that's something supported by the vast majority of people. And, you know, Max Boot is an interesting case because he's over the top, but it's a good good person to to, 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 to aim at because he, he reflects a lot of, I think, the thoughts of other columnists like that. But imagine telling a young person that democracy can only be saved if there's one party. Yeah. It doesn't even make any sense. It's the opposite of that. But that so, is where yeah. we are. And, and, and that is where we are. I've been trying to tackle this from a couple different angles. As I say, you, you, you have a you have a great and unique one on it in your column here at The Federalist. And I've been trying to think of a good phrase for it. It's um, 
uh, Ryan Williams at the Claremont Institute and I talk about he he calls it a regime hierarchy. I kind of like the idea of a opinion principle hierarchy because I I kind of take it back to Jefferson's first inaugural where he says we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists. Um, you know, uh, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. And the Democrats seem to have left that line of thinking behind. They are seemingly trying to instantiate a one-party state, aren't they? Uh, it goes to the issue of why free speech doesn't matter to them anymore. It goes to a lot of things. But that's kind of the way I see it. There's a marginalization as if the Republican Party needs to be untermentioned. It's not part of this, the appropriate stage anymore. Is, is, is that a fairly decent way of getting around this or getting to this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that they've become and started during the Obama years very frustrated that they couldn't pass the reforms that they wanted. And then I think Obamacare and the passage and how we, you know, that happened blew it up, blew up our political order in many ways. I don't think we felt, you know, there were ripples and then, you know, and we felt it later when Donald Trump became president. But you see it now in that they want to delegitimize the Supreme Court. I mean, there was a concerted effort with where, you know, Democrats as a whole, but the president specifically as well, delegitimizes the Supreme Court, essentially accuses it of corruption and undermines and and belittles its decisions in the mind of their voters. They do the same thing with other institutions, with their efforts to make our elections more direct and centralized and federalized. They wanted to take over the whole election system of all states, overturn hundreds of laws, and create a federal regime for elections. That is pretty authoritarian in my mind. It is authoritarian, and maybe even worse. Uh, It it might even be stronger than that when they start using anti-democratic norms, like packing the court to save democracy, as you write about, or creating a ministry of truth. I mean, if you wanted to recreate Orwell's novel 1984, one, one, one might say Orwell was, was, was casting a warning. One could look at that book today and at some of the goings-on in the Democratic Party and the left-wing columnists and say, looks more like a how-to manual to them. Yeah, if you, you could go back in history and in, in any modern authoritarian regime, and again, I'm not saying that Joe Biden's Hitler or Stalin's coming or anything like that, but I am saying that every authoritarian uh, government and regime, their excuse for censorship is always to protect the people from disinformation and misinformation. That is like the, the leading cause of censorship in this world. That's right. Um, to protect the people from speech that they should not hear. And what are, what are Democrats doing these days? And how do they do it? They have this unhealthy relationship between co- its corporatism, basically. Yeah. I mean, you have giant corporations, rent-seeking corporations that rely on the government that need government regulation that benefits them, and they just take their cues from the government. Yeah. Now, it's not, you know, the textbook definition of fascism, but it certainly is a fascistic kind of relationship. And you have it with big companies, you have it with energy, you have it with healthcare, you have it down the line. And I just think it's getting worse and worse and pretty dangerous. Almost to the point, well, maybe not even almost, but uh, let's say to the point of even certain forced confessions or forced confessions of not necessarily religious faith, but political faith. Uh, We started seeing this during the BLM uh, riots, but we've seen it. You see it in corporate America now with um, with the kind of clients you can take and the kind of clients you can't take, the kind of bonuses you get for representing certain kinds of clients. Mm 
bonuses that are not available to you when not. It, it fast becomes almost as authoritarian as can be without using the word authoritarian or literally changing the law, incentivizing and forcing off the stage of respectability those who don't hang in the window, uh, the phrase workers of the world unite, to play off something Vaclav Havel once wrote. Right. And I think it's important to remember remember as well that there are lots of people who, who value, let's say, the First Amendment. Yeah, right. valuing, you don't value it because it is the First Amendment. You value it because it represents the kind of liberal ideals that you believe are important in a society. So when you have giant corporations, uh, I don't want to compel them to do anything, but when open discourse and dissent is crushed and not important in, in society itself, even if you can do it, you know what I'm saying, even if a corporation can shut you down, it doesn't make it right. It means there's something wrong. There's a rot in society. In, in America, we believe that people should be able to have their opinions without being crushed by you know a corporation or the government or anything else. So I, I just feel like there's a lo- there are a lot of people in this country who don't value the underlying tenets and fundamentals that are important in keeping a free nation free. And when you don't value that in your everyday life, sooner or later you start not to value it in law either, and that you know, and it's corrosive. And in the end, you're not going to have those freedoms. Uh, yeah, that's right. They're they're kind of they're they're kind of ignoring the Jeff Goldblum war- warning in Jurassic Park. You kept asking if you could do something, not whether you should do something. That's that's what you, that's 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 kind of what it was uh, reminding me of when you were talking about. Yeah, do they do these private corporations have the right to do these things? Yes, um, but should they? And it kind of leads one when you think about it. This attack on free speech or this marginalization of free speech or this curtailment of free speech of conservatives or that which is perceived to be conservative, it, it, it really, if you give it a couple of years in any example uh, you can think of, it, it kind of proves the value of the First Amendment. To wit, think about the kinds of censorship during COVID, people raising concerns about learning loss, people raising concerns about mental health problems uh, affecting our youth if we went this direction. Also, you know, all as censored as possible, and yet here we are today with NAEP scores in the gutter and mental health crises on the right. I'm going to take a quick break and pick up with you on that when we come back, if I may. Our guest is David Harsanyi. He's a senior editor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com. His most recent piece Uh, From yesterday, Democrats, the only way to save democracy is one party rule. He and I will be right back. Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think they should. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Uh, David Harsanya is our guest. He is senior editor at The the Federalist, where he has a piece up uh, Democrats uh, say the only way to save democracy is through one-party rule. David, yeah, let me pick up on that free speech First Amendment uh, ethic with you, if I can, because we tend to, at least still in the forms of, of constitutional law, know that the most respected and most protected form of free speech is supposed to be political speech. It seems, however, in an odd and curious way, 
that that's the first thing that has been cabined and curtailed over the last several years when in the hands of those who have the power to do it, uh, whether we're talking college campuses, whether we're talking social media, whether we're talking um, whether we're talking other forms of debate. And um, and 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 we're kind of seeing and forgetting the po- well, we're kind of forgetting the point that the idea of that free speech in, in the political context was so that the best public policy options could be you know, chosen from that which was debated and argued out, and you eliminate one side, particularly during COVID. This is a big, big issue of mine. Uh, the censorship that took place uh, during COVID uh, mitigation strategies, and and we're reaping everything that the that those who were censored were warning about. Not, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. You, you you hit on two things there that that I think are important. First. Of course, and this should be obvious to people, and maybe it was a, a while back, and not anymore, is that protecting convention, you know, speech that is conventional wisdom or non-offensive. Well, so what? <laughs> we don't need protection for that speech. We need protection for speech that is offensive, that uh, challenges conventional wisdom, and that uh, you know causes debate. Unity is a terrible word. Unity is an authoritarian word. We don't need unity, political unity here, because that is. You know, we, that's what you have in North Korea. You don't want that here. We want vibrant debate. And how was that stopped during COVID? Well, the government agencies working with corporations undermined speech, which brings me to the administrative state, which is another sort of facet of this kind of new yep. authoritarianism, yep. where you have an administrative state, like this, or you have a, uh, you know, a, an agency like the CDC that <laughs> just decides it's going to tell Facebook what speech is allowed, but also, uh, you know, get involved in other policies that it, it is not empowered to do in the Constitution. Um, but that, of course, goes to other agencies and, and, and other administrative state actors as well. Let's say the Pentagon. You know, when, when uh, Donald Trump was elected, a lot of people in government did not like his foreign policy, so they essentially undermined his presidency and made it impossible for him to act. And that is not how a democracy or democratic institutions are supposed to work. David, uh, I hate to have to stipulate this on air, but uh, but I'll do it just for the sake of people following the discussion. Uh, I have no uh, no no hesitation in saying that Joe Biden is 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 a legitimate president and is our president. Uh, I do believe there was a lot of interference, particularly from media. Uh, I think some of it has been substantiated with regard to uh, Facebook uh, jiggerings and certainly the censorship over the Biden laptop story and 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 all that but you know when it gets to this whole issue that every republican somehow seems to be responsible for claims of illegitimacy if you listen to hillary clinton or msnbc or the ladies on the view um it's it's really quite interesting how much democrats like hillary clinton or stacey abrams or others have thrown around with reckless abandon the phrase of illegitimacy uh, about Republicans and long before the 2020 election, I mean, in the 2000 election in the 2004 election in the 2016 election, to be sure. And I wonder if when they say illegitimate, Bush was illegitimate, Trump was illegitimate. I wonder if they're implying or imparting a double entendre that it's not just the forms of how they got there, but because of their views, they're illegitimate. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. I mean, this is why they don't have any room for dissent or for another political party. They think it's illegitimate to begin with. 
they haven't ex- they haven't accepted a political uh, a presidential election since what 1988 or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I think that's what you wrote. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It's not. It's not as if it's not as if they don't challenge the legitimacy of presidencies. But I have to ask, why can't you <laughs> challenging uh, the the way elections are run and 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 uh, you know how they're run and if it's legitimate? That's a that's a that's part of the political debate and political speech. As long as you're not acting in any kind of violent way or or ignoring the law or undermining the law, you know I am so sick of having to take responsibility for the January six writers. Right, right. They're not they're right. not part of my effort. <laughs> they are not part of my movement. It involves no not. one you had ever heard of, or for that matter, anyone anyone had ever heard of except themselves. I think I'm pretty yeah. right about that. Right. Yeah. And everyone you had ever heard of denounced it, yeah. right? <laughs> I think. Yeah. yeah. And I and I said, you know, I, I think, you know, it was a lot of what went on there was terrible. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. I mean, why I don't uh, I don't demand other people take responsibility for violence that they did not participate in or or support. Why should I? Why should anyone? And, and there, there, yeah, therein is another key part to what you're writing about and what we're talking about. I thought way back when, I mean, uh, the day the day there was a riot in Baltimore that Nancy Pelosi was asked about, not just because she was Speaker of the House, because it was her hometown. And she said, people will do what people will do. This was this was before the 2020 election. I, I knew and I spoke heavily about that. You You may have written about it as well, that this is a really interesting new kind of anarchistic take. And if the Speaker of the House can excuse violence like that, a precedent is being set here that is not going to end well. And boy, they sure summoned up their moral self-righteousness and indignation after January 6th, having ignored all those apologetics for the violence of 2020. But that's again, isn't it? Because they think in some respects, Soto Voce or Magna Voce, that Maybe maybe there was a point to the 2020 violence. Maybe there was a legitimacy to it, right? I, I, that's a there's a little bit of that under there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And they absolutely, I think they they saw it as as political pressure. Um, they wanted a kind of anar- societal, you know, anarchy going on because of you know, how terrible Trump was, and so on and so on. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I think that Trump acted recklessly in the things that he said. The January 6th. But, you know, um, he's not alone in politics and people have to take responsibility for themselves. Um, but but the idea that and, and they do this constantly. I saw it on The View and Ted Cruz yep. was on The View right. the other day. They did this. They conflate challenging an election legally, which but those senators were perfectly within their right to yep. do, by the way. Yep. Um, and they conflate that with violence and they conflate it with the movement to, you know, and, and they call it a coup, which is because they don't understand what a coup actually means. Yeah, they also. And, yeah, uh, let, let me take a quick break and pick up on that. Let's, yeah. This is important. Yeah, no, this is not a, a small issue. I'm Seth Leibson. He's David Harsanyi. He's a senior editor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com. His most recent book, Eurotrash Why America Must Reject the Failed Ideas of a Dying Continent. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. David Harsanya is our guest. You can uh, read his works over at The Federalist, where he is a senior editor. David, you were just about uh, to say something about 
January 6th and other protests of and, and debates over elections and the word coup. And we had to hit the break. It's a big issue. I wanted to give you the full the full volume on it. Well, let's throw around the word coup. But, I, you know, as, as you know, to basically int- not even intimate to say that Republican Party, anyone who challenges the election, anyone who even brings up that that there might be. Uh, you know, before the election, that there might have been certain shenanigans or there may have been laws, you know, uh, ignored or bent to, to help uh, Joe Biden is part of the same collective that is trying to overthrow the United States government and the Constitution. I'll tell you, to me, for me at least, the whole uh, Russia collusion thing, for instance, is a far more reminiscent of a coup because it's from inside the government. Mm-hmm. It was the the intelligence services and the, and the and law enforcement mm-hmm. services concocted a bogus uh, claim of sedition against the duly elected president of the United States, who I was not even a big fan of. Mm-hmm. But yet they tried to overturn the will of the American people. They would not. They tried to stop the American government from working, and uh, at least the executive branch. And and that is far more, even though I wouldn't call that a coup either exactly, but that is far more consistent with what, uh, at least how I understand the coup d'etat to to mean. I'm with you on that. Now, if we can move the needle just a few years later to 2020, and you think about what took place with that Hunter Biden laptop story, um, you, you, you had these, what was it, 51 former intelligence officials uh, dressing themselves up in the gloss and respectability of their, you know, of, 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 of their intelligence, uh, of their intelligence uh, briefings and then their intelligence uh, expertise telling us that this had this laptop had all the trappings of Russian uh, misinformation or disinformation campaign, <clears throat> which served as the self-reinforcing uh, justification for places like MSNBC and CNBC, where a lot of them are employed, by the way, as contributors, to take that line and thus justify the censorship. This actually, based on two poll exit polls I've seen, did have an effect on, on the 2020 presidential election. People said they wouldn't have voted for Biden had they known about the story. Um, that that that's That's a whole other special, different... Um, magnified problem to all this, isn't it? Yeah. Again, there. I think there are two things you hit on there that are very important. One is we have a corrupt media. Mm-hmm. And I don't even like talking that way, but it's just true. Yeah. We have a media, in an authoritarian state, you have a media that's run by the, you know, that answers to the state in some way, or is run by the state. We don't really have that. We have a media that is run by one party and answers to one party. That happens to be the state right now. But if they're out of power, it still acts as, you know, a, 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 a you know, an arm of that political party. That is very dangerous. And uh, it is and somewhat of a cliche to say that you can't have a really functioning democracy without a functioning press, but mm-hmm. it is true when mm-hmm. you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's incredibly important. And now I totally forgot what my second point was. But um, I don't know how that can be fixed. I think it's getting worse and worse. And the hunter by, oh yeah, so and, and the second thing you hit on is the complete decimation of trust in our elite. That's there is no, just no, no one. No. And that is a huge problem. There's a vacuum there. When just as the, no one trusts the media, they turned to unreliable sources. They believe conspiracy theories because there is a vacuum that is not met. Uh, there's a vacuum that, that, that needs to be filled by something. So um, 
those are two huge problems. And you have someone like John Brennan sign that letter that you mentioned. Right. I mean, this is a guy who was oversaw the CIA when it spied on Senator. You know, That's right. he should be in front of a congressional committee. He should probably be in jail. But yet he is out there uh, threatening the president, you know, and, and, and lying about uh, using his position to lie during an election to, to turn it to the party that he wants to win. That is just it's just corruption. David, say something if you don't mind. Uh, do you have to go or do you have time for one more segment? I, I, I can do it either no, way. I have time. Okay, let me, let sure. me take a quick commercial break. This is a short one. We'll come back. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the role of editorial pages and editorial commentary versus news commentary um, and, 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 and what seems to me to be a pretty dramatic and pretty complete uh, uh, combination of the two and, and no longer a lack of separation between what the editorial pages do and what the news pages are doing. We'll pick up on that with David Harsanyi when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. David Harsanyi is our guest. He's a senior editor at The Federalist. His uh, piece that uh, I can't commend to you strongly enough, Democrats, the only way to save democracy is one party rule. You can get it at thefederalist.com. David, the media and the conflation, if you will, or the erasure of the separation between what is opinion uh, journalism and supposedly news journalism. We were talking about these kind of authoritarian tendencies. We always feel a little squeamish going there. I'm less and less squeamish about it. I see, you know, atop the Washington Post, which hosts Max Boot, saying democracy dies in darkness, you know, this kind of thing. But my gosh, uh, the level the level that of propaganda I see in CBS is no less than CNN and the editorial pages at a lot of the papers are um, are, are, are uniparty. And it seems like the news stories are unidirectional. It does seem to me we have successfully marginalized conservative thought voices and even objectivity when it comes to the media. I wonder you, you have a lot of experience in this world. I wonder if you might just share some thoughts on that part of this. Well, yeah, I mean, I was on an editorial page for, years and um i don't know i think that we overestimate the power that an editorial page would have in the community i think it did have some power uh when it came, came to uh, local races where people were not you know did not know exactly what was going on and they turned to the institution you know the, the, the institution that they trusted the newspaper to to let them know um but yeah i mean since then since i left papers in 2010 or whenever it was i mean i just think there's you know the paper I worked at barely exists, but in general, these big papers have just become completely ideological. I have no real problem with with with, with opinion columnists like Max Boot or whoever uh, going off. Though I think it it's bad for America that we don't have more ideological diversity on those pages. You know, I mean, there's still a George Will or people sort of left over from the old days with any kind of new conservative does not really represent conservative thought in the United States very much anymore. You know, I put quotation marks around those conservatives like Jen Rubin or whoever else. That people are even aware of them, but uh, I think they matter less and less. And I think I matter less and less. I think that people—not that I ever matter less again. With them, you know what I mean? <laughs> don't do I that to yourself. Don't do that. I, I, just, I, I think that people are not—they don't trust writers 
there's not much policy debate going on, as I mentioned earlier. No one's really debating policy. It is basically just partisan warfare. I'm completely uncomfortable in, in that because I've always felt myself to be a little bit of a contrarian, but I less less and less do I see any kind of redeemable qualities in the modern Democratic but, Party. But so I will say I, this, I, though. I will yeah. say this about, let's take the Washington Post. Uh, when I lived in D.C., I, I, I seem to recall it being... I don't know how many years ago, 10, 10 to 20 years ago uh, in that window. I seem to remember the Washington Post editorial page, op-ed page, really one of the most balanced in the country. I, I thought it was really very balanced. You had George Will when he wasn't, you know, by some standards, a questionable conservative, Charles Krauthammer, others. Um, my sense is now to be a quote-unquote conservative colonist there, you have to be Jen Rubin. Um and, and and that the needle of what kind of conservatism, quote-unquote conservatism, a lot of these papers will tolerate comes with a test, comes with a test, which is how conservative are you? Not very is, is, is kind of the first answer. Am I overstating yeah, no, I think, it? Am I, maybe I am. No, no, I think you're right, and I think you're right about the Post being sort of, I would call it the left of center institutional voice or establishment voice. And, uh, you know, so... I think you're right. I mean, reading Crowdhammer and George Will, these are heavyweights. I still, you know, I mean, I still have immense respect for both. Sure. So, um, but, uh, but you know, I, what I wanted to quickly say was, though, that I think that what you mentioned earlier about the news page yeah. and, okay, and let's, the ideological yeah. bent of news pages, right. that's the real concern because right. you have, you always had bias. Yep. I worked at a newspaper that was biased, but yeah. now you have activism. Yep. Uh, you have reporters who, who yesterday I read a story, I forgot where it was, I'm sorry, but it was about the Fetterman debate, and they did not even mention, not once, the Fetterman struggle to uh, to basically cobble together two coherent sentences, mm-hmm. and yet they just focused on Oz's abortion comment. So that sort of thing is meant to mis- mislead, but I just don't think that the power is there anymore because of the Internet, and people go out there and they get to see the video, and it just doesn't have the same... I think it's important because these... Institutions like the Washington Post had a lot of money that can they can um, you know they, they're supposed to be watching over the government. They're supposed to spend a lot of time investigating and reporting on these things, and they do not. Yeah, they, that's exactly that. right. They were supposed to be the guardian of the guardians. That's why this res- response to Dasha Burns, I thought the NBC reporter who ah. did right who d- who did say what happened with her Fetterman interview, she became the goat. Um, and I guess in part because she disclosed what the rest of the media, her colleagues had been covering up for months. But that kind of was the role of the media. It was kind of to challenge. I mean, why do we think Gary Hart yeah, is the president? Mean, you know? Yeah. I mean, her sin was understating how right. bad Fetterman was, not overstating. Right. And yet she was, she was just attacked by these people who have million, you know, million followers on Twitter, demeaned, her journalism demeaned. And she was the only person who, who did any journalism. That's right. That. That's right. Yeah. And then the, they the Senate is the most that, powerful legislative body in the world. It, it, and we it, did not know that this person is un- incapable of doing this job. That's exactly right. And when you think about the use of labels, David, back to where we started this conversation, um, they, they throw around these epithets, which is also the mark of authoritarianism, if not worse. So Dasha Burns is not only a traitor to her profession, I suppose— She's an ableist. Um, you know, we're going to ratchet up ableism now because she disclosed an, I guess, uncomfortable fact for the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's not just that. It's meant to. It's not just about her. You know, I mean, you know this. It's to chill 
anyone. You know, it's it's prior restraint for the next guy. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. It's a warning. It's yep. a preemptive warning to anyone else who's going to engage in any sort of journalism. And, you know, and, and why would they? The incentives are all not to do it. The incentives <laughs> to be. Who needs no, that? I mean, yeah, no, you're incentive, right. The incentive yeah. is to be partisan. Yeah. That's what gets you a lot of followers. That's, That's what gets you a lot of, uh, you know, a, a high-profile job and, and gets you on MSNBC. Yeah. Good reporting doesn't do any of that for you today. Yeah. That You're right. disincentivized from doing that. Well, uh, David, uh, thank you for doing what you do, and uh, I will, to the best of my ability, incentivize you continually. I appreciate uh, (laughs) what you do. I appreciate your time with us as well, sir, very much so. Thank you very much, David. Back at you. Thanks. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. I'll have a closing thought when we return. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're worried about stock market volatility, our sponsors, Why Refi, have a great investment opportunity for you with a strong fixed rate of return and no correlation to the stock market. It's all in a secure and collateralized portfolio with an up to 10.25% return for investors. That investment, it can be in an IRA, it can be in a trust, it can be a joint investment, it can be an individual investment. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm made up of great guys, I know them well, and they do well by doing good for others. And you can be a part of that, too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087, 855-316-3087. They're based here locally. You can visit with them. You'll never get a sales pitch. They just like talking about what they do. They leave the uh, sales pitches to me. This is a uh, really big issue, the one David and I were just talking about for the past hour. This, uh, what I will still, until I find a better phrase, and if any of you have one and want to send it to me or uh, or recommend it, I I will take it. This idea of uh, opinion principle hierarchy. Uh, Jefferson, again, in his first inaugural, said every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. Uh, The Democrats no longer believe that. They believe if you are of one party, you do not share the principles of democracy. Uh, And David uh, was very good in highlighting that. This is very dangerous in the sense that we will soon be coming uh, a a one-party state. Uh, If the press has their way, if this ethos of the Democratic Party has their way. It's not that they want to argue against us. They don't. Heck, if they had their druthers, they don't even want us to debate. Why do you think Katie Hobbs won't debate Carrie Lake? It's more than just the fact, though it's true, Carrie Lake would mop the floor with her. It's more than just that. They don't want to give airtime to Republicans because they don't think Republicans have a claim to the public airwaves, to public airtime, to vote. You see this in example after example that David Harsani wrote. And I think this is an incredibly authoritarian statement that Jimmy Carter put out today. Without immediate action, we are at risk of losing our precious democracy. If American citizens cast legal votes for Republicans, it will pave the way for anti-democratic takeover of our country. The Republican Party in and of itself to the Democrats and increasingly to the media that does not call this out and that supports this kind of this kind of authoritarianism. Uh, we, we are we as Republicans are the intervention. We are the uh, untouchables. We are not a legitimate party. This is the gloss. This is the temperature. This is the climate they are trying to create. Nothing could be more authoritarian 
Nothing could be more authoritarianist than that. The answer, I guess, at the end of the day for right now is, that's stupid, the answer for right now is to show them that they do not have a monopoly on public opinion. And I'm hoping that's what November 8th will be about. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed.